Whatever your plans for later life, you want to be with Prudential. Uh, what are your plans? How would you answer that question? I'm not so interested in the what, but how you would answer it. Would you say, I want to? Or would you say, we want to? Our culture is uh, very individualistic. Uh, It's even coded into the language we speak. Uh, So when I say, how would you answer that question, you hear, how would I answer that question? Uh, But I actually said, how would you answer that question? Uh, And that's, how would you all? Uh, And that's one of the problems we have when we read the Bible, actually. When it's in a modern English translation, there is no distinction between you and you. Uh, But just to help you, almost all the time, it refers to you in the New Testament. It refers to you, plural. Uh, So that's something you need to bear in mind, you all. (laughs) Y'all, as you read scripture, that it's about a community. It's about a people. And we've, we've looked at some of that in our series on the church. We've looked at how... Uh, the body of Christ is made up of many members. Uh, We've seen how there's a city, uh, there's a people of God. One consequence, though, of our culture is that people are very lonely. And the gospel is not about loneliness. So what are your plans If you ask Jesus' church what their plans are for the future, the answer, one of the top answers, will always be, we want to be together. And that grates with our individualism, just as it grates in that little clip. Uh, You do get the impression that uh, she perhaps has other plans, just as she has other financial plans. So is that you, individual? (laughs) What are your plans? Do you have other plans? Um, What are your plans for investing in the future? Have you got your ISAs topped up? How well is your pension plan doing? Are you working hard at your GCSEs and your A-levels? All done. (laughs) And your degree. (laughs) If you get the grades. And how's that dream career panning out? Is your next promotion in the bag? You're on the ladder? And what about your plans for marriage? Looking around the room, sort of targetedly. How many kids will you have? Let's not be too specific about where we look for that one. Um, <laughs> and when the kids leave home, uh, do you plan to dine, downsize, downsize? No, downsize, kick back and go on a world cruise? <laughs> How many of the fif- 50 things to do before you die have you already done? The secret, if you never want to die, is don't start, Okay. Do you think a lot about these things? Uh, Do you actually sometimes feel maybe I've messed up and I've missed out? Um, Are you anxious about the future? Do you lie awake at night uh, worrying? Well, Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans seek after such things, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is your priority? What are you putting first? What are you seeking first? And what legacy will you leave 
When you're gone, what legacy will you leave? Is God's word producing a bumper crop of good fruit in you, fruit that will last? Or have the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things choked that word? Choked it out of you, made you unfruitful, so that there'll be nothing left. What legacy will you leave? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and when thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So where are you laying up treasure? In an offshore account? Where is your heart? And where is the church in your thinking? When the church says, we want to be together... Do you think, stuff the church, I want to live my own life on my own terms? For New Testament believers, their heart, their treasure, their righteousness, their legacy, their plans for the future, their priorities, their 50 things to do before you die, indeed, the only things worth doing and dying for were all tied up with Jesus and his church. Now you may have seen this sign in town and uh, politeness means I'm not going to draw attention to where it is but you may have seen the sign that says don't come to church, come to Jesus. I think we know the sentiment behind that. But as we studied the Gospel in Life course with Tim Keller, we've been working through those Wednesday evening sessions and, and we've learnt that the Bible doesn't make a distinction between coming to Jesus and coming to the church. When it comes to the church in Jesus, it's not either or, but both and, because the church is the body of Christ. The same Jesus who says, I am the light of the world, John 8, verse 12, says to his church, you, plural, you, all, are the light of the world. How is that possible? We mustn't draw a distinction between Jesus and his church on this point. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he says, you are the light of the world. So come to church, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, come to church. The two are linked I was just uh, thinking this through and, and uh, it's, it's all through the Gospels and I was just thinking of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and just a few verses in that uh, just underline that for us. He says in, in verse 8 of John 17 I have given them this is him talking to his father I have given them the twelve the words that you gave me and then later he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So the mission of Jesus from his Father is the same mission that we receive from Jesus. To be light of the world. Now, uh, 
I've been reading a fairly disturbing, provocative book uh, called Total Church. I don't know if anyone has read that. Um, it's by a guy called Tim Chester and another guy called Steve Timmis, and uh, they, they, they're in, in Sheffield. And uh, Total Church is a very thought-provoking book, and it, it's well worth the read. Um, I haven't discussed it at length with the other elders, but it's uh, very challenging on a number of points. And uh, I'm going to read you a little bit of, of a, 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 a section from the book. And it's, it's also going to draw on other people. And first of all, it's going to draw from Paul's letter to type, Titus. Titus ch- 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, we've, we've already seen this in our series on the church, a people. Uh, but Jesus gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people, to purify us, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, Christ wants to create a people not merely isolated individuals who believe in him. And as we saw in the big picture uh, in our series on the church, God says in Exodus to his people, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And that's echoed in, in, in Revelation. They will be his people and he will be their God and John Stott um, writer preacher ornithologist um, deceased uh, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God it's not a a divine afterthought it's not an accident of history on the contrary The church is God's new community for his purpose conceived in a past eternity being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity. It's not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness but rather to build his church That is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. A people, a plural, a collection, a group, a body. We want to be together. Now, it is partly a cultural thing because uh, in other parts of the world... um, Identity isn't so individualistic. In fact, in, in the East, um, there's a, can't pronounce it, Hosa proverb, which says, a person is a person through persons. Our culture says, Burger King, have it your way. Sinatra says, I did it my way. L'Oreal says, because you're worth it and there are a lot of adverts that say you need to get the education the career the holiday the car the house the spouse the family the retirement the health care the funeral care you deserve (laughs) have you noticed that get the whatever you deserve And our society is all about affirm me, affirm me, text me. I haven't had a text for at least 30 seconds. I'm going to a personal crisis, I'm going to melt down. Subscribe to my blog. I've only had three readers today on my blog. Follow me on Twitter. Like me on Facebook. Don't like me on Facebook. <laughs> but, but Tim Chester and Steve Timmis say, 
an identity that I construct for myself is far removed from an identity I receive by grace. Churches are full of people trying to earn their identity or prove their worth. As a result, we lack assurance or contentment or put others down to bolster our own self-perception or are dependent on the approval of others or are self-righteous or vulnerable to any circumstance that prevents us fulfilling our ministry. By the key defining relationship for, but the, sorry, the key defining relationship for Christians is our relationship with God. Who am I? I am a child of God and the dwelling place of his spirit. And this identity is given to me by grace. Just think about that just for a moment. The sign that says don't come to church, come to Jesus, is sort of making an apology for these things, but it is recognising how they are. Churches are full of people trying to earn their identity or prove their worth. As a result, we lack assurance and contentment or put others down to bolster our self-perception or are dependent on the approval of others. You wouldn't want to invite anyone to a church like that, would you? So it's really important that we under, understand our identity in God as his people. More than that, the Bible shows that we are communal creatures, made to be lovers of God and of other people. When it comes to humanity, God does not simply word, speak a word of command when he creates. He engages in a conversation. He says, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. The only thing in all creation that is not good is man on his own. Divine personhood is defined in relational terms. The father is the father because he has a son. God is persons in community. Human personhood then is also defined in relational terms. I am the son of David and Margaret Harmon. I am the husband of Rachel Harmon, Nee Embry. I am the son-in-law of Arthur and Margaret Embry. I'm the father of Dan, Tim, and till today, AJ. <laughs> and Abby. I'm the father-in-law of Rachel Harmon. Nee Lloyd. I have uh, an employee record with Sun Microsystems. I have lots of ex-colleagues who are friends of mine. Uh, I am a former strict Baptist. Amen, brother. Bridget. Yes. I'm an elder of Gateway Church, Wrexham. I am a child of God. All of those definitions are relational and they define who I am and they're unique to me. So these relations say, Chester and Timis, make me unique. No one else shares the same matrix of relationships. Take the blue pill. But it also <laughs> defines me in relation to other people. I am not autonomous. I am a person in community. I cannot be who I am without regard to other people. And so into our intensely, pervasively individualistic world, we speak a gospel message of reconciliation, unity and identity as a people, the people of God. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my, and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It is not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church, like joining the gym. 
My being in Christ means being in Christ with others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. We want to be together. I don't know why it came out like Churchill, but... All that by way of introduction. So uh, if you'd like to turn to (laughs) Acts 2... Get the book, it, it's much better than me reading it, okay? Um, very helpful, very provocative. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and let's read again uh, the theme verse and the following verses for this, this series, okay? The devoted series. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is the second in our series. We've already seen how these New Testament converts, this early church, this first church, were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Um, And Nigel explained how that devotion came directly from their response to the gospel. They understood that the death and resurrection of Jesus had implications for them. In the verses before, let's just turn, if you have it, uh, Acts 2.37. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They, they weren't half-hearted in their response to the gospel. Uh, They took direct action and and they were going to obey Jesus and follow him whatever it cost them. Now, baptism was something that you did to Gentiles. So for a Jew to be baptised in this way uh, marked you out in your community. Um, Your family would probably have issues with that and probably have something to say about that. But they, but they went ahead and they were baptised. It could have caused some trouble at home, but, but no. Uh, the apostles have commanded us to do this, so we'll do it. If Peter says it, we'll do it. And that was the beginning of devotion to the apostles' teaching, and it continues. And as they come to Jesus, they are added to his church. There's no gap, is there? They just they come, they're baptised, and they are added that day to the church. And they, they said, we want to be together. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to be corny, isn't it? But there were no lone, lone rangers. There was no, I think I can be a Christian on my own after all. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, I I have my faith. No. It was a relationship with Jesus and his church. They became part of his people. Another book that I found really helpful this week uh, is by uh, Phil Moore. Um, He's a New Frontiers uh, theologian and writer. 
and he's uh, written these commentaries and uh, I've been picking up Straight to the Heart of Acts by Phil Moore and uh, very, very helpful. And he says about these people, they were genuine converts, which meant they didn't need to be dragged to follow Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? They were genuine converts. They didn't need to be dragged to follow Jesus. When Paul tells us that his Macedonian converts gave themselves to the Lord and then to us, we begin to understand that Luke is not merely describing the practices of a one-off group of Christians in Jerusalem. Every growing church has always been like this, from Antioch to Asia to Europe and hopefully to your own church, to our church here in Wrexham. Church leaders mustn't wear out their churches in trying to disciple those who are not disciples. Treating new converts like passive little babies is a surefire way to wear out our members, stifle church growth, and put an end to a church's advance for the gospel. Calling for new converts to follow by devoting themselves to the local church, however, is an equally surefire way to discover which ones are truly converted and to help them to grow into mature believers that God can build with. So that's, I think, very, very helpful. I think I've made the mistake in the past of trying to disciple people who don't want to be disciples. And... uh, As Steve would often say, you can't lose people that you don't have. Um, And so, if you're hearing the voice of Jesus, if you want to follow him, come and be a part of this community of Jesus. Come and be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. And don't expect the old style church where one minister does it all every week. And he won't come and knock on your door if you haven't been there. Do you want to follow Jesus or not? Are you going to be a disciple of Jesus or not? Are you going to devote yourself? Do you want to be together with God's people? Okay, the word for fellowship in this section is the word koinonia. You may have heard that before. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that pops up about 20 times in the New Testament. And it actually pops up in that bit where Phil Moore is talking about how Paul talks about the Macedonian church. Uh, and that appears in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll just read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, and uh, see if you can spot the word koinonia. We want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God that has been given among the Gentiles, sorry, about the grace of God that has been given among the Gentiles of Macedonia, for a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. I don't know if you... Did I emphasise anything else? The word taking part... Um, actually the word koinonia is uh, used all over in about 20 places Uh, it's sometimes translated or means oneness togetherness communion participation partnership contribution sharing or as we have it here fellowship 
So throughout the New Testament, participation and togetherness and oneness, koinonia, is a characteristic of God's people. And uh, one other book that I found very useful, John Stott's The Message of Acts. He says, koinonia bears witness to the common life of the church in two senses. First, it expresses what we share in together. That is, God himself. Paul says, for our fe- no, John says, for our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our koinonia is with the Father and with the Son. And this is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13. Thus koinonia is a Trinitarian experience. It's a common share in God, Father, Son and Spirit. So we share in God, koinonia. We have fellowship, participation with God, koinonia. But secondly, koinonia also expresses what we share together, what we give as well as what we receive. Koinonia is the word Paul uses for a collection he was organising among the Greek churches, and koinokikos is the Greek word for generous. It is to that that Luke is particularly referring in Acts. So koinonia. When we had a collection uh, to send Nigel and Callie to Turkey later this year, we are expressing togetherness, oneness, fellowship, participation in something much bigger. And in Acts 2, there's a, there's a hint of how we should read Koinonia as well, because it says, let's go back to that, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now that word in common is another word that's like koinonia, it's koinos. So they had fellowship, koinonia, and they had all things in common. Selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as all had need, and day by day attending temple together. They wanted to be together. But this degree of closeness um, doesn't sit well with our 21st century Western culture. Indeed, if we're honest, it probably makes us wriggle and squirm. I don't know when you've, you read passages where Jesus said, uh, or you may have even heard somebody preach like this, well, Jesus said, uh, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. But of course, he doesn't mean that we have to do that today. Now, Jesus warns the Pharisees in Mark's Gospel not to have a tradition that nullifies God's word. We have to be very careful when we read this that we don't sort of patronise them and say, well, that was all right in their time, simple people. Uh, they don't have to live in Western culture. Um, but we see something of their heart, and we have to be very careful that, you know, actually Luke admires these people. He doesn't think, They've lost it. He thinks, this is amazing. This is what happens when people are truly converted. This is what happens when God's spirit is really at work. People do stuff that looks completely crazy. And they have things in common. They want to be together. Some here will probably remember... Um, a, a time, a, a ter- there's a term called heavy shepherding uh, from a, a period in the past where churches would, would take this a step or several steps too far. Um, what we notice from the, what Paul says about the Macedonians and what, what happens in, in here is that people chose to do things of their own free will. Uh, heavy shepherding is when church leaders uh, say, we want to see your bank account, um, uh, and we want to make decisions for you. We will decide where you live, the car you buy, the job you have, how many children you have. 
Um, now, in our response to heavy shepherding, maybe we have gone way too far the other way and become way too individualistic. Um, but what they did is of their own free will, they considered one another in all of their decisions. Now I happen to know that somebody, a friend of mine, is moving house, or hoping to move house, to be in Wrexham. It's not his first choice of place to live. But he has thought about where he should live, and he's thought about the needs of the church, and so he wants to move, and he wants to live in Wrexham. Um, that's the sort of togetherness thinking that we need. The sort of thing that says, I have freedom to do. I have freedom to live where I want. I have freedom to work where I want, to go where I like on holidays, spend my money the way I will. But in my togetherness with God's people, I will make choices that are for our common good because we want to be together. That's koinonia. That's not heavy shepherding. You see, the trouble is when one error comes into the church, quite often we go to another extreme. And we don't have difficulty being selfish and individualistic in our society. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to togetherness. We want to be together. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. Luke gets really excited about it. He's heard all the warnings that Jesus has given when he's written his book of Luke, you know, the first book. He's heard Jesus warn people about riches. He's seen what riches do to people. And he sees the early church sharing and having things in common. He thinks, this is great. This is what we need to encourage people to. And the other apostles encourage the same thing. So Paul talks about the Thessalonians and the other Macedonian churches in the same way. Why? Because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's why these things happen. If you think this is a step too far, this degree of togetherness is too far, then you may have a problem. I remember talking to a friend of mine about how the scriptures encourage us to encourage one another daily. In fact, they command us to encourage one another daily. And saying, well, that's very difficult in our society. Uh, we like to make appointments three weeks in, a, in advance to have dinner with somebody. And that's a big scheduling problem for you, Steve, if you're going to organise that. Um, but, but he said, you know, we don't want to be living in each other's pockets. Well... Quite frankly, if we had a bit of a trouble, with, a little bit of trouble with living in each other's pockets too much, that would be a great thing because we are so far the other way. And as we were discussing on Wednesday, there are lots of things that are difficult for us in our society today. We live a long way apart. Some of us live like 30 miles away from each other. Yeah. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? So how are we going to express this togetherness how are we going to encourage one another daily but maybe your heart isn't even there maybe you don't want to do that well there are some warnings John says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers You've got a problem with assurance? You're not sure you're a believer even. Do you love the brothers? Do you love the community of, of Jesus? Do you love the church? We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's interesting, John repeats the same teaching then. If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do we know that we've passed from death to life? We want to be together. If that's not you, perhaps you're not even saved. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be added to his church. Only then will you be able to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and to prayer. Stop laying up for yourself treasure on earth. Start laying up treasure in heaven. Invest in a lasting legacy. The danger with preaching a series like this is that we can say, well, this is not where we are. Now we need to book your ideas up. Could you tell who I've been living with this week? (laughs) Book your ideas up, Chuck. Ducks. (laughs) What we don't want is this to to be law. Luke isn't making this law. He's just saying how wonderful the church is. Look at the, the extent to which they go. See how they love one another. Jesus said, this is how all people will know that you're my disciples. And Tim Keller was talking, wasn't he, about this, the overlapping kingdoms, the, the kingdom of this age and the kingdom of the age to come. And he was saying we are like a city on a hill and we are to model something that is attractive. So our motto could be come to church, come to Jesus. Oh, it is almost. Come in, find Jesus, go out and tell others. We need to model something here that is a community of grace, a community of love, a community of devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. When we see lives transformed in that way and people knit together, people saying, I'm I'm not going to stand for my rights as an individual. I'm going to start thinking us and we, our. That's when the world will look on and say, I don't understand it, but it's attractive. It'll be like a light on a hill. It'll be like in uh, A Bug's Life, wouldn't it? It's so beautiful. (laughs) And they won't be able to stay away. They won't be able to stay away. Because this is kingdom life of the age to come that we are to model. This is God's new community. This is God with his people and them with their God. Him dwelling with his people by his spirit. Stirring them to do stuff that in the world's way of thinking and in our current culture's way of thinking is crazy but compelling. And it's when people see us living like this that they'll run to Jesus. Give me something of what they've got. And they will do crazy things. And I just want to uh, probably finish. Uh, how are we doing for time? No, we've got loads of time. Oh. We'll take a halfway point. Uh, having finished the introduction. Just something of our heart as leaders, our heart as elders for you. I was reading what Paul says to the Thessalonians about what he thinks of them. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, he says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear 
to us. And people have a go at Paul for being, you know, the anti-women, you know, hard nut theologian who's hard to understand. But Paul had this huge heart for people. He said, I didn't come and discharge my duty in telling you the gospel. No, I wanted to share my life with you because you were so dear to me. Now that's how your elders feel about you. And that's how we want us all to feel about each other. You're dear to me. We want to be together. What's Paul's investment in the future? What's he building? 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Good question. What is it, Paul? What is your hope? What is your joy? What is the crown in which you will glory in the coming of Jesus? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Is it not you, he says? Wow, what a heart. Then later, read read 1 Thessalonians, a real tonic of brilliant stuff. 1 Thessalonians 3, 8 and 9. For now we really live. Why? Why do you really live? You've got uh, a new diet, Paul. You've got uh, this new, new superfood you've, you've discovered. Um, no, now we really live because you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? And some of you want to move away. Well, we don't want you to go. You're dear to us. God is doing something amazing here. He will continue to do something amazing here. And that's what I want to invest in. I want to invest in what God is doing in Wrexham. What God is going to do in North Wales. What God is going to do through us together that will be enough for me that will be my joy my glory my crown that will be the thing I throw at Jesus feet and if you stand firm that will be such a joy if you will be a people together on a mission New Frontiers, churches together, a family of churches together on a mission. We can do more together than we can apart. Yet some of you think you can do more on your own. No, you can't. Not lasting treasure. Not a legacy. No, we can do more together than we can apart. That's true of us as a church as much as it's true of us as a family of churches together on a mission. I think that's as good a place as any to stop. (laughs) There's lots of practical outworking we can be doing. I think we're going to have an amazing time this evening as we welcome six more people fantastic isn't it when when jesus takes hold of someone and makes them do something crazy it's the first step of obedience really in the christian life repent and be baptized it's a crazy thing to do isn't it particularly in our culture what how much water do they use heaters well i hope they do (laughs) I'm going to be in there longer than anyone Uh, but that crazy first step 
is the beginning of a life of crazy steps. These people had all this stuff in common. Why? Because they were devoted to each other. Why? Because they were devoted to Jesus. They were the people of God. And that's what we have to model. Let's, let's pray. Do you want to stand? Lord Jesus, you're building your church. The gates of hell won't stand against your church. You love your church. It's a glorious bride. You're looking forward to that day when you will present her to yourself absolutely perfect. And then the biggest party will begin. You have your people, your army. Lord Jesus, you're altogether glorious. And in our best moments, we'd say, we'll do anything for you. We'll hear those words and give us the grace to do them. Thank you for these people here. Thank you for the way that you knit hearts together. Continue to knit our hearts together. Give us such an amazing love for each other that it just shines out like a city on a hill, like a lamp on a stand, and that it draws many people to you, Lord Jesus. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're here to make a name for you. Build your church, Lord Jesus. Build your church among us. And give us that kick that we need. Give us that determination that we need. Give us that power that we need to be devoted to you, to your teaching, to the fellowship of your people. Help us to really function as a body where when somebody's missing, it feels like an amputation. Make us a body that ministers to each other, not, not dependent on just one man, but each serving one another and having each other's interests at heart, considering each other better than ourselves. Help us to store up treasure in heaven. Oh Jesus, let your word come to us and may it find good soil. May it produce fruit 30 60 100 times what is sown and may you have all the glory father thank you for your son thank you for sending the spirit to us thank you spirit for being with us and enabling us and empowering us to do this help us now to do not just speak help us to obey with joyful hearts, because we have such a wonderful Saviour. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, for being with us. And now, help us to do these things. And may your fellowship be with us as we fellowship now. In Jesus' name. Amen.